Have your unanswered prayers for relief ever left you exhausted? (laughs) Maybe you find yourself in distress and you pray like you ought to or you try it and nothing happens. Your situation doesn't change and God doesn't seem to be changing. You might keep going for a while and you might start to feel ashamed to admit it, but you might start to wonder inwardly and maybe even out loud, depending on who you're talking to, God, are you really listening? Do you care? The sad result of this is often that our prayers over days or weeks or months or years just kind of stop. Have you ever stopped praying? One of my children wrestled with this during a long season, which continues, where sleep didn't come easy. And uh, one night after we prayed for her mind and body to calm down again, uh, she returned to see me in the hallway once more and said, I keep praying, but the bad thoughts won't go away. Maybe your bad thoughts won't go away. So what does it mean to faithfully pray when this is your life? Well, a somewhat unlikely person is going to show you today, and it's not me. It's our friend Habakkuk, the prophet who has been wrestling with questions just like this with God himself. His his is a book of the Bible not often associated with hope. We don't normally snuggle snuggle up with a cup of coffee and read Habakkuk. Um, But um, today, as we close the book, uh, we end with a big, fat, juicy serving of hope. At least you have to squint to see it. Over the past month, we've walked through a dialogue, this is the book in a summary, between God and Habakkuk as his nation Israel finds themselves in much distress. Here's a summary. In in chapter 1, Habakkuk lamented the terrible sin of Israel, and he asked God, what are you going to do about it? And God's response was, I'm going to send Babylon to destroy you. And uh, Habakkuk's second complaint, also in chapter 1, was, no, (laughs) that's not like you. What kind of God is that? You save your good people from the bad guys, right? God's response in chapter 2 was essentially, what do you mean by good? The only good in a person is if their faith is in me. He then promised life for such a person, and he promised judgment for all who place their faith, faith elsewhere. So in short, Israel's situation, where we find ourselves, isn't changing And God isn't changing. And in fact, God, I think, flips Habakkuk's opening question back on him. Habakkuk's opening question to God was, what are you going to do? And God's reply is, this is what I'm doing. What are you going to do? In other words, where will you put your faith? Today, Habakkuk gives his final response, and it comes in the form of a prayer. And it's a prayer I think God's people can learn from as we walk through seasons and even 
whole lives of distress. This prayer comes from knowing our situation doesn't need to change. And God doesn't either, because he won't. But rather, we need to change. We need to put our faith in him. So we're going to look at this prayer in three parts. And I'm going to read the first part now. It's verses 1 and 2 of Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So the first part of the prayer is this. God is not safe, but he is good. The first evidence of that is a very strange word in verse 1, Shigianoth. Rolls off the tongue. That that is a word used to describe ancient poetry that's full of strong emotion. You would read it in the introduction and you say, buckle up. Some older theologians have even called it wild wondering. Uh, Modern theologians would simply say, this poem has all the feels. (laughs) We notice it right away in these first two verses. In verse 1, Habakkuk sees the work God is doing and rightly says, your work do I fear. Our our dear brother Ryan pointed this out um, in chapter 1 where God said to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And the rest of Habakkuk is Habakkuk not believing it. He's astounded. He can't believe it. He's left wondering wildly. What are you doing? But where he, but where this once led him to object to God's work, He now says in verse 2 of chapter 3, revive your work throughout the years. Make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. In short, Habakkuk is saying, do what you will. Only please have mercy on me. These are the words of a changed man. Many of God's children might compare this to a scene in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from which I shamelessly stole the subpoint title. And uh, this is a point where the, the main characters, the Pevensey children, find themselves committed almost inadvertently to the magical but very cursed land of, of Narnia, very hopeless situation, and no change seems to be in store for them until they learn of a lion named Aslan who's promised to come back and deliver Narnia. It's fairly thinly veiled allusion to, to Jesus. And Mr. Beaver, who is one of my favorite characters, elaborates to one of the Pevensey children in this way. He says, Aslan is, is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
The response to this in the book is that the children are a bit overwhelmed, but they don't run away. In fact, they kind of start drawing near to this idea. Friends, when you pray, you do not pray to a safe God. Many children who who read this book, they grow up and they discover this, don't they? They find a God who allows people to die and allows natural disasters and, and war and unanswered questions. They do good things like pray for the end of COVID and they wonder, why isn't this happening more quickly? Friends, God is good, but we have to remember that when we pray to him, his way is not often our way. And so it is our way that must change. This is hard because our present distress shouts pretty loudly, doesn't it? So in a way... We shout back when we pray, God, do what you will. Only please have mercy. These are the words of changed people. It's the posture of faith in God rather than self, which is where, according to Habakkuk and according to God, this is where life comes from. Uh, Friends, Becky and I are, are planning to go back to, uh, to North Africa. Sorry if you didn't know that before just now. Um, we're going to actually share a little bit about that later. And when I think about that trip, I feel these verses. Going voluntarily from a more comfortable place to a, a harder place, for the, even for the sake of the gospel, sometimes I, I feel like I'm being sucked into a black hole. You ever feel like that when you share the gospel with somebody? You know? These people need to hear the gospel. But man, this is going to be hard. But these people need to hear the gospel. But man, this is going to be hard. Finally, I and I hope you settle on this. This is how it has to be. This is how the gospel goes out. God, do what you will. Only have mercy on me. Right? You see how this can be confusing even when you're doing it voluntarily? I think that's why Habakkuk gives us more. He's already shared God's scary, not safe, but very good power, now he underlines the good next. He's going to remember and show us that God's power is for the good purpose of delivering his people. In other words, God's not going to change, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Let me read verses uh, 3 through 15. This is a bit of a longer portion of the prayer. And I want you, as I'm reading it, to consider what part of Israel's history might Habakkuk be referring to. So let me read that. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens 
And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. The raging waters swept on, the the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Very poetic, but here's what it means. (laughs) The second part about, of, of Habakkuk's prayer is, is that God has got the whole world in his hands. Maybe you caught a little bit of that history lesson I alluded to. I won't spell all of it out. You're free to do it later. But this is kind of an Old Testament crash course in God's sovereignty, especially the book of Exodus. But it comes from the heart of a man who is now seeing correctly. In verse 3, we see the phrase, God came from Teman and Mount Paran. That's basically a, a pinned point on the map of the book of Exodus. And um, what follows shortly after is terrifying pestilence and plague, which you would attribute, if you're familiar with the Exodus story itself, to God sending down judgment to deliver Israel from Pharaoh. Let me also highlight verse 8. God's wrath against the rivers, his indignation of the sea. And shortly after the phrase, um, you, uh, you split the water, you split the earth with the rivers. So there's great power, terrifying power like we've talked about it. But what's it for? It's for the sake of deliverance. So I'll stop there in terms of the history lesson. You're you're free to make more connections. But for now, here's what that means. Here's why Habakkuk's saying this. Habakkuk here is reminding himself that the idea of God's terrifying power for the sake of deliverance is not new. What God is doing with Babylon is not new. In fact, God has been doing that all along because that's who God has been all along. 
Terrifying? Yes. Deliverer? Also yes. In short, God hasn't changed. But Habakkuk just did. He's now choosing to see God correctly. Maybe you need to reread your Bible through new eyes. Or even currently, how do you, how do you view seasons where you get distressing news or you see distressing events? You might happen, you might say, today was a bad day. Or, what a terrible, like, what are you doing, God? I mean, recently our church has thought a lot about things like Parkinson's disease and cancer and, yeah, COVID. These verses tell us, for example, that things like sickness and disease, they're not anomalies and they're not obstacles to God's kingdom. Rather, they're under God's authority and he's actually using them to deliver people. And when we question that, we question God. Now think about what that looks like. You've already seen this in your life probably. Think of a sick person who instead of getting bitter, gives glory to God and actually uses their time and energy to help other sick people. That's what it looks like. Or just consider the implications of verse 13 as we try to rethink the way we look at things. Verse 13 says, You, that's God, went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. And he goes on, and this is a reminder to us that every war and every rise and fall of every nation is under the authority of God for the sake of deliverance. Now, we often don't live life like that. We look at that complicated situation in the East. Say, oh no! What's going to happen? Or, we look at the situation our nation is in, and what's often our gut reaction? America's crumbling! Don't we think that? Do you think God feels threatened by that? Do any of your clothing, does any of your clothing say made in Babylon on the back? Babylon, what Israel used to fear, is gone now. There might be a day when none of your clothing says made in America. Is that bad? Is that really so bad if God's sovereign? Friends, God has the whole world in his hand. He is not safe, but he is good. So what kind of conclusions does this imply? What's our our daily posture look like as we apply this in the present moment? Not just to general things, big news events, but just me and the Lord. Well, here's Habakkuk's conclusion. It's verses 16 through 19. I hear 
And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into, into my bones. My legs tremble beneathly. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So the third and final part of this prayer to God is this. Little ones to him belong. Habakkuk shows this in verse 16. When he trembles and says to God, I'll wait for you. Faithfully praying in distress simply means fearfully waiting on God for deliverance. And this produces something better than fig trees. Or I might say this, look at verse 17. There's no food. There's no food, whether animal, vegetable, or mineral, to be found. That's part of Habakkuk's prayer. And this is a scenario of your town, your city is under siege in war. I mean, just imagine you can't get food anywhere. And what Habakkuk is saying is, I've got something better than food. Because there is nothing in Habakkuk's age to have faith in. And his response is verses 18 and 19, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And all this is a quote from Psalms 18 and Second um, Samuel 22. That little verse we read there, these are words from David, who was ironically king of uh, Israel when it had a lot of food. <laughs> and in these quotes, David has won another seemingly impossible victory. God has delivered him. So has God delivered Habakkuk and Israel here? Here in the book of Habakkuk? Not yet. In fact, it looks like he's absent. But to Habakkuk, with right vision, God's promises is so sure, it's like the deliverance is already here. He doesn't even need to see it. He knows who God is. And he knows what God will do. Friends, when you look around, in here and and out there, does it look like deliverance is here? For some of you, you might be younger and your parents take care of all the scary stuff. Or you're in college and you're still spending money and you're not paying it back yet. Um, maybe your life as you're young looks a little bit like the happy world of Narnia 
Then you get a little older, and it stops, and it starts to look quite the opposite. And for all of us, there will be a day when you look around in distress and your prayers are unanswered, and you'll wonder if God cares. You might even wonder if Aslan's really going to show up. Well, Habakkuk knows because he sees with new eyes. And maybe as a result of his faith and his prayer, maybe some in Israel changed too when they read it. So what about us? What does all this mean for you and me? Well, like Habakkuk, our hope in present distress is to look back. To look back at who God is. Now, we can look back at Exodus, that's good, but we can look back to what Exodus points to, and that's the cross. We can look at Jesus. Jesus, who took the full judgment that Israel really deserved. It's the same judgment you see in every sickness Every disaster, every war, and every terrible nation, all the general, and in some cases, specific results of sin. All of these sins, under the authority of a good God, were poured out on Jesus, who the Bible describes elsewhere as the author and perfecter of our faith. Was this a safe endeavor for Jesus? No. Cost him his life and faith in Jesus may just cost you yours because he said so. Will it be safe? No, but it will be good. Will North Africa be safe? No, but it will be good. This deliverance of Jesus, it's not just limited to here, though, because it actually came with a big promise, a promise that God has offered on the cross to the whole world, not just Israel. It's that this world will one day be made new. There won't be sickness. There won't be disaster. There won't be war. To the children who can't sleep at night, there will be no darkness. Only peace, only light. And when you let future promises like that invade your hopeless present distress, it changes the way you see distress. You change. Even if your situation doesn't. Example. Here's why that's a lot better than maybe... Our prayers, our little short-term ones. Say every time you prayed, the bad stuff just went away immediately. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, it might seem nice, but this would numb people to their need for God. You might even say a life like this would imply that you're God and he's at your command. Who gets the glory in that scenario? If I uh, 
If I went to North Africa and it were easy, well, everybody would go, but you know what? They probably wouldn't take the gospel with them because they wouldn't need it. But instead of that scenario, with easy prayers and a lot of comfortable living, imagine instead a bruised and battered body after a long and hard and painful life, holding fast to the promises of God and dying faithfully and leaving a legacy. That pain was viewed correctly. God's power for the sake of deliverance. It served to bring the person to a deeper faith in God. That's the win. You might even say a life like this is that God is God and you are not, as it should be. And when you think like that, you start to sound a little bit more like Jesus. And then verses like this one start to make a lot more sense. You read verses like 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, which says this. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See how that reads a little bit differently at the end of a sermon as opposed to the beginning? Friends, how glorious heaven is in and of itself, but how much more glorious it will be for someone when earthly suffering multiplies and yet God's people remain faithful. This also means that the suffering saints among us, and you know who you are, they're not to be pitied. In fact, you should bring them dinner and ask them for advice. This viewpoint is only possible because of who God is. So, if that is where your faith is, good. You now know exactly how to view suffering. And you have one another to remind you. But, if your faith is not there, not in God, then your times of distress will simply be Bad times that you'll eventually, when they get bad enough, you'll beg to be out of and they won't change and God won't change and you won't change. In fact, you might try to repaint God to your liking in desperation. And that won't work. And then things will get a lot worse. But... For those with faith in God, the distress here is as bad as it gets. And after that, deliverance. And here's a snapshot. I'll give you a little bit more Narnia. Um, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia t- called The Last Battle um, puts it this way. Uh, spoilers. Sorry. Um, the, um, the children are welcomed, finally, into a restored 
and delivered Narnia by Aslan himself. And here's how it ends. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in the world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. And each chapter is better than the one before. Friends, that great day for you might be today. Might not. Doesn't matter. Because for you, Christian, your life right now might not feel safe. And every prayer for relief that you pray from now until the day of your death might seem to go unanswered. God is not obligated to those. But he is actually obligated to something better by the blood of Jesus. Deliverance, salvation, mercy. Because God is God and God is good. And so as you wait for that, may your prayers be faithful and may they be in allegiance with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we love that you hear the things that we pray. And we thank you that the answers to our prayers, even though they seem absent or they seem much different than what they expected, they are good and we can trust that because you are good. We see it all throughout scripture. We see your power, good, not safe, for the sake of deliverance. We ask that you would help us to see with new eyes today. For those who do not know you, I pray that they would see you for who you are. And they would see themselves for who they really are. And I pray for everyone else here who knows you, that we would be strengthened in our desire to know you more, and that we would encounter times of suffering with joyful hearts. Thank you so much for who you are, Lord. Amen.